This episode is sponsored by the Bay Area Battery Summit. This November, the Bay Area Battery Summit returns, gathering energy storage experts to discuss the electrification of mobility. For more information, please visit batterysummit2019.splashthat.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, BlackRock goes circular. In search of the activist CEO, a zest for combating food waste, getting a grip on your plastic footprint, and the rise of the zero czar? It's much ado about nothing this week on 350. It's October 18th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining we Per usual, from her perch in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Greetings and salutations. And salutations. Well, it's a two for this week. Um, how are you doing in the run-up to our big week next week? Oof! I'm uh, coming up with questions. I'm planning a lot of interviews. I'm very excited. I have uh, several stories I claimed for myself. Um, I I got to pick what I wanted to cover, and so I've got some uh, really interesting reporting that I'm going to be doing on digital supply chain issues and uh, artificial intelligence, partly because I'm actually managing two sessions on AI, which you know is one of my favorite topics. I can't figure out whether I like it more or less than blockchain. It's kind (laughs) of like... (laughs) <laughs> wow what's a girl to do it's a tough I know. one yeah, really. and, and the big week in question of course uh, just for the uninitiated is our verge 19 conference next week in oakland california where we will have uh, close to three thousand people coming this year to uh for three or actually a little bit more than three days of of sessions and summits and a uh a electric ferry sunset cruise on San Francisco mm-hmm. Bay and uh, lots and lots of other things. So when you look at the sessions that you're involved with that you've been seeing, what are you excited about? So, you know, one of the sessions I'm really looking forward to, actually one of the main stage talks, Verge Talks, is Pratima Rao. She's with VMware and she's in charge of their, you know, she's one of the great team members in charge of their blockchain work and uh, VM I don't know if you knew that VMware is very involved with blockchain research and development they've got some work that they're doing to apply it to supply chain issues so that's of course one of my favorite topics you know, how do you improve traceability how do you improve just the 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 flow of information across an entire value chain so she'll be presenting on that but also she'll be talking about just sort of the need for inclusion right and how this could be one of those uh, this type of technologies that helps get more people involved and and down into different econ- you know different economic levels. So I'm really looking forward to that. Of course, we got some pretty heavy hitters on the stage on the first day, including your governor, 
uh, Gavin Newsom, which is amazing, but also Mary Nichols. Um, so I'm really excited about the caliber of speaker. I mean, we, we start off with a bang. <laughs> I mean, literally, <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, and it just keeps building throughout the week. I have to say one of the other ones I'm really looking forward to towards the end, I think it's Andrew Zoli. He is talking about using space to manage life on earth and to specifically manage sort of the, the big, um, problems that we're trying to solve, like deforestation, right? And how you can use satellites and, and all sorts of wonderful, uh, again, my geeky topic alert, but, <laughs> but I'm uh, really looking forward to, um, to hearing about what he has to say about that. So what about you? I know you get you, I'm jealous, get to interview a certain someone yet again. And I'm so grateful she's coming back. You want to tell everyone who that is? <laughs> I assume you're talking about Lisa Jackson, <laughs> I the, am. the yes. uh, head of all things sustainable and more mm -hmm. at uh, a little telephone company called Apple. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this will be uh, Lisa and my third Verge conversation. Sort of seems to be on an every other year cadence. And it's always interesting to, to hear what uh, they're doing and how they're doing it and, and how it's going. Um, we started off uh, four or five years ago, first time with um, talking a lot about Apple's renewable energy uh, goal, 100% renewable energy when it's operations and it's supply chain. And it's 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 there at least on its operations and it's moving forward on the other side and so now a lot of the f focus is on uh, materials closing the loop and the circular economy and all they're doing um, but there's there's uh, you know, I think a bigger interesting issue or several of them along the way here too which is sort of this tech lash that's taking place in terms of how does technology companies uh, fit in when there's and uh, in, in think about sustainability in a time when there's uh, so much pushback on the role of technology these days. Um, uh, I mean, there's a technology for good, as you're talking about the uh, blockchain and and uh, AI and and other things, and and all the uh, electric vehicle and renewable energy and other technologies. Uh, but also the traditional tech companies, the Googles, Facebooks, Apples, um, are as you know well getting a lot of pushback. And so I think that's an interesting conversation. Um, and then you know, sort of looking at social impact all along. So excited about that. And yeah, as you said, uh, the Honorable Gavin Newsom, the uh, in his first term, first year still as governor of California. And it's a little bit of a, of a closing a loop because I also interviewed him at our Green Biz event eight years ago during the first five weeks, actually, of his uh, turned into an eight-year stint as lieutenant governor. Um, and uh, he came to the Green Biz stage. And we had a really nice conversation, about a 30-minute conversation about what the hell does a lieutenant governor do? And, and it turns out there's a lot going on. He was still trying to figure that out at the time, too. That was the first question. He said, you tell me. Uh, but it was uh, uh, he's, he's such a great interview and uh, such an articulate uh, person. And, and, of course, the issues that California's grappling with, at least some of them, around uh, wildfires and the outages we had with PG&E, uh, just in the past week or so, uh, we talked about that on last week's show, and the hardening of the grid and the resilience of the grid and uh, congestion on the roads, uh, part of that's the result of the housing crisis where people have to drive farther and farther to get affordable housing. These are a lot of the issues that we'll be talking about at Verge, so it'll be a really great way to start the show. But um, 
There's one other thing that I'm excited about, and we're going to talk about a little bit later on in this episode. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. And her name is Deanna Anderson. Yay! She's the newest member of the Green Biz editorial team. She's uh, already written several stories. Uh, one in particular, we'll be talking about uh, a food waste technology company we'll be getting to in a few minutes in this show, and we'll learn a little bit more about Deanna herself. But Let's, meanwhile, learn a little bit more about the Week in Review. So I'll get us started. I love this piece by Susan Gladwin on the zero czar. Do you have a zero czar? What is a zero czar? I just, I, that, first of all, great headline. I don't know if you picked it or, or she did, but um, it's just a wonderful way of talking about the need for an advocate at, at the highest level if possible, the CEO certainly would be a wonderful place for this, this advocate to, uh, to live in that, in that corner office, or maybe not a corner office, but you know, that, that title would be wonderful. But I love the concept that you really need someone at the, the board, in the boardroom, right? So, and this is something we've talked about a lot, um, that you need someone in there advocating with the board, because that still remains an area that, that people are kind of clueless, right? Especially if they're from outside industries, which is what you do when you have a board. You take people from other sectors and you try to get great perspectives from other places, hopefully diverse perspectives, not necessarily always the case, but but anyway, I mean, just the, the fact that in order to, to get to this sort of scale that we need, that we need uh, uh, to double down on, on this, this role. So I love the just, it, you know, this is one of those stories that we've been saying this sort of thing, but it's a great way of just catalyzing and giving it a, a term. And I, I love this one. So what about, uh, yeah, and I, I, she's a great, she's, makes a great argument. So Yeah. And, and zero czar, of course, refers to getting to zero uh, emissions on climate change, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, that's, you know, who's going to own that and how, where is that going to be driven from? And as you said, ideally from the C-suite, if not the boardroom. But it also, of course, applies to the other zeros, uh, zero uh, waste and uh, zero toxics, um, maybe zero violations, uh, human rights violations in a company's supply chain, uh, you know, getting to zero. And I know there are people who saying, you know, zero is not a very good goal. Why would we want to get to zero? We want a positive impact. And yes, we do. But right now, uh, particularly in, in climate change uh, uh, policy and, and corporate practices uh, and, and the IPCC world, you know, getting to net zero emissions by a specific date has become the sort of new norm. And that's what we're talking about here. And that's what's really critical is who's going to drive that. And because it's not necessarily something that you can do from the environmental department, um, you just may not have the uh, sufficient clout or resources um, or access uh, or even visibility into some of the, the challenges. So I think uh, this is just a, a very thought-provoking idea, and uh, I don't know whether the the meme of a zero czar will ever manifest, but uh, it's a, a great reference point. I, you know, and I, I just want to make one last comment. I love the, the the idea that she said. You know, talking about how there's sort of brands are enabling people to sort of net zero themselves, right? give, give a, an offset of some type at, at least and, and how that should be the sort of default, right? You shouldn't, 
let, let, let people opt out of that to kind of put it in their face and make sure that everyone's seeing and thinking about this. So as a brand, the, the way that you can talk to your, your customers or potential customers, I actually had a, a great opportunity to spend some time with PepsiCo this week. And it was really refreshing to have the CEO asking me about how, you know, how I perceived his, his idea of embedding this sort of sensibility across his operations. And I was like, whoa, yes, you know, like it shouldn't be siloed. And that's the other point here is this has to be an operational default, if you will, instead of a, an, a you know, a something on the side. Yeah. So let's move on to another interesting story about the world's largest uh, asset manager, uh, BlackRock, $6.84 trillion in assets, launched a fund uh, in partnership with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation to focus on circular economy. Um, it's a teeny tiny fund, just $20 million out of uh, uh, almost $7 trillion, but it's a great, um, I think, vote of confidence in this emerging circular economy world. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm sure if they uh, deploy that money uh, in relatively short order, there will be more behind that. And, and I think we'll start to see some of this um, from some of the other mainstream funds. There have been funds coming out of you know, the closed loop fund, for example, sort of purpose-built funds from purpose-built organizations, but not from the sort of the, the big asset uh, managers. And I think that's an interesting development. Yeah, I, I love the concept of, of who this money will go to because, you know, when I think about the members of the circular economy that we really need to, to come to the fore, there's several different types, if you will. And so this fund is dedicated to adopters, so companies that are designing reusable or repairable products, enablers, Right, so resale platforms like ThreadUp or, or you know, Real Real or other kinds of, of platforms that we see. I mean, I guess sort of the sharing model if you think about it. Um, and beneficiaries, so like firms that can actually, you know, see their their revenue increase because they're moving away from single use. They've created a service and, and so forth. So I love sort of the, the triple lens, if you will, of where that money will go. So I think, by the way, I, I do want to mention that ING does this too already. I know, again, it's Dutch kind of- Dutch bank. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they have been, you know, they've got two things that they're doing, I think, that are pretty groundbreaking. And you see the European banks, I think, being a little bit more aggressive about this, but they have, they're, they're, they're doing a lot of work on sustainability linked loans, right? So- they're granting commercial loans to companies and, and they're sort of rated and their, their rate fluctuates based on their ES, their environmental, social and governance scores, like according to certain rating agencies. So we see them doing that, but also they have been funding companies that they feel could enable the circular economy as well. Not, you know, not a tremendous amount yet, but, but they're uh, actually have an interview planned for right after Verge. So Stay tuned on that. I, I do think it's a wonderful opportunity that that you know some of the mainstream investment organizations should be looking at far more closely than they are. Yeah, and the Dutch are all over this. And the other bank besides ING is uh, ABN AMRO, uh, which has uh, been looking at the circular economy. And it's 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 part of this is well, not part of this, largely driven by the fact that uh, the Netherlands has a goal that by uh, the middle of this century, by 2050 the entire country will become circular, the entire economy of the Netherlands. And so that, uh, as big, bold policy moves often do, 
incite a lot of uh, innovation and uh, proaction on the part of leadership companies, and starting with the banks in this case. So uh, BlackRock, welcome to Circular Economy. Uh, lots more to come on, the, on that front. But uh, let's move on to this uh, last story we'll talk about today uh, by our special projects editor, Elsa Wenzel, on the Urban Freight Lab. Um, that's trying to solve that, not just the last mile, but what they call the last 50 feet of, uh, of the delivery package delivery system. Interesting, fascinating story. So, yeah, and I, I love this piece because it's, you know, I, I sit here in my home office and look out the window and all these trucks come up and down the street every day, UPS, Prime, you know, like just FedEx. Um, and they're jockeying and they're turning around and we have a, we're on a dead end. So these, you know, sometimes they have to back out of the street. And so this, you know, this, the research that this urban freight lab do is doing uh, in, in actually the city of Seattle, they're sort of got a working laboratory, if you will, is focused on um, right now, this, this sort of, how these drivers make it around a city. So when, when you hit a, an office building, especially in urban climates, right, in urban environments, you know, how do they park or double park the, the vehicle and then get into the, the building and get out of the building before getting a, a, you know, a ticket or, or whatever? And, and where can they pull over? And are they blocking traffic? And, um, you know, what's, what's happening? So the research that this organization is doing right now in Seattle is focused on that, and it's pretty. It's this this particular lab is a is a working group that brings together some pretty pretty um, heavy hitters. So um, the story was inspired by Michelin joining the uh, big tire company, but the other companies involved: Ford Motor, uh, General Motors, Kroger, Nordstrom, PepsiCo. Uh, UPS is there, UPS, uh, the U.S. Postal Service, um, and then some real estate companies, Torino Realty, and um, a startup or two, Curbflow and U.S. Pack, and interestingly enough, Boeing has got 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 someone involved as well. Their venture arm, Horizon X. So it's a really wonderful piece on sort of the challenges of of dealing with this, and certainly something that every company that's delivering goods to people should be looking at. It's an issue that, that we've talked about. UPS has been talking about this a, quite a bit. Um, they've done a, a couple of really good sessions at our conferences. Um, and this is sort of a wonderful real world experiment to, to figure out how to solve these things. Yeah, one of the missing players in all this, of course, is a little company mm -hmm. called Amazon, uh, which may be as responsible as anyone, uh, at least directly and and indirectly through some of the other carriers like UPS and FedEx of of some cities hitting what we often refer to these days as peak delivery, yeah. uh, where you've got so many uh, vehicles on the street and running outside your your street. By the way, I didn't realize you lived uh, in what most people no longer call a dead end, but a cul-de-sac as do I, so we share that in common. Um, but anyway. <laughs> Mine is actually not a true cul-de-sac, so I use that word. I mean, it, it's kind of a weird, it apparently used to be a through street at some point, so they just kind of capped it off. So there's really no place for <laughs> these poor people to turn around. They get to the end and they're like, what? Um, you know, Amazon was uh, in, evidently invited <laughs> to join this this group and, and politely declined. Um, you know, and actually, I just want to, I noticed this this morning. It's kind of apropos. Uh, I my neighbors. I clearly have Prime Delivery Day on Wednesday. Like three of my neighbors literally had 
four or five packages to deliver to their homes this morning. Boom, 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 all in a row. And that, and that that's one thing I do appreciate that the ability to sort of, you know, consolidate the packages, if you will, and pick. Okay, if you're gonna if you ordered five things, like okay, just bring them on the same day, please. Make one trip. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by the Bay Area Battery Summit. This November, the Bay Area Battery Summit returns, gathering energy storage experts to discuss the electrification of mobility. For more information, please visit batterysummit2019.splashthat.com. As I said earlier, we recently welcomed a new member of the GreenBiz editorial team, Deanna Anderson, who wrote a story this week about a technology company helping to solve one part of the food waste problem. But first, let's meet Deanna herself. Hey, Deanna. Hi. Thank you for having me on the podcast. We're so grateful to have you as part of the team. Why don't you give us a little background about eh, their professional journey to get here to GreenBiz? Um, so I graduated in 2016, actually, uh, from J School. And from there, I bounced around doing internships and fellowships. And most recently, I worked at Yes Magazine, um, which is focused on solutions journalism uh, about social issues. And here I am at Green Biz. J School, of course, for the uninitiated, is journalism <laughs> school. Uh, but uh, talk a little bit about what your interest is in, in Green Biz. During my time at Yes, I started covering um, environmental issues, and when I saw the posting for the job at GreenBiz, I thought this was a great fit, and I also think that companies play a major role um, in environmental sustainability, so I'm excited to kind of push them through my journalism um, and ask them important questions that our readers need to know. And I think we're at, if I'm counting correctly, week four uh, of your tenure here at GreenBiz. What are some early impressions? What are some of the things that you've learned or found most surprising? Right now, I feel like I've learned that companies are doing maybe more than I thought they were doing um, before learning more about them. But I also think that they could be doing more. Um, And I think that's something that, um, based on reading more about the environmental sustainability movements and what employees are wanting their companies to do that they could be doing more to uh, reduce their carbon emissions and just address environmental issues, um, other environmental issues. And as you look at sort of the scope of things that that are we're writing about and, and talking about at our at our conferences, are there some particular topics that you sort of are interested or excited to lean into? Um, One of the things I'm most excited about is the circular economy. It's something that's new to me. It's something I'm intrigued by. And it seems like it's something that a lot of companies are trying to figure out what to do. Um, We just had a story recently about BlackRock and the Ellen MacArthur Foundation starting a circular economy um, fund, which I think is something that's really interesting and something I'm excited to follow more and see what they do with that. Great. Well, speaking of circular economy, you wrote a piece this week about food waste, and you spoke to the CEO of a company called Zest Labs. Tell us about Zest Labs. 
Um, so Zest Labs is an ag tech company that's actually located not too far from us in Oakland. They're based in San Jose. Um, and basically what they're trying to do is address food waste between the farm and the retailer or restaurants. Um, and they're doing that by using Internet of Things sensors um, on pallets that the produce goes onto at the farm. So how does that solve or address the food waste problem? Um, so basically what the sensors do is they um, calculate basically how much longer the produce will be fresh. So uh, they take into account the harvest quality, they take into account the product's um, aging rate, and also the field conditions um, during the time of harvest. Um, and basically, when I spoke to Peter Mayring, who was the CEO, he explained a bit about how the sensors help distributors and farmers make those decisions. What Zest Labs does with Zest Fresh is we found a way using um, IoT sensors, Internet of Things sensors, um, cloud-based software, and predictive analytics, a lot of which is we've really come up with over the past few years. It's unique to Zest Labs. And, and we are allowed, we can, we can track the food and say exactly how it's handled. We can actually accurately predict how long it's going to last. But if you knew some of the product was harvested under non-ideal conditions, um, and it was only going to last 14 days, if you knew that, you could then ship that to a closer location that maybe is only a day away instead of shipping it to a location that's five or six days away, thereby effectively saving four days the same four days that you know it's not going to last as long. Mm -hmm. So you're making an informed decision with data from a Zest Fresh solution. So I thought it was interesting that Zest is focusing on a particular segment of the supply chain between the farm and the grocery store. Why is that? Um, so basically research, there is some research that shows that um, about half of food waste is created before it gets to, to the consumer. Um, and so in addition to like losing so much food before it gets to the consumer, there's a significant impact on the growers, the distributors, on their pocketbooks. Um, so basically Zest Labs is trying to address the food waste issue and also address like the money issue for people who are growing our food. So how's it going? Are they actually making progress or do you think this is a promising solution? Um, so right now it seems, based on my conversation with Mayring, is that they are seeing some success um, in reducing food waste. Um, but there's also something that stood out to me um, during our conversation is that he thinks that there needs to be more education around with consumers about food waste reduction. Um, he mentioned to me that the issue seems to re-enter people's minds during events like our upcoming Verge conference, um, where we'll have a couple sessions about food waste, but then it slips away from people's minds and people don't think about it as much. Um, they don't use the information they have about food waste uh, to make decisions about what they buy. Um, so there's a disconnect there. Um, here is Maring talking about the role consumers play in reducing food waste. Um, I think it's getting better, but I think it still has a long way to go before this becomes a, a real solved problem. Consumers care first about having online ordering or home delivery or other priorities, and food waste gets a reduced mind share with the consumer. Um, and that's disappointing. 
the, this has many aspects that impact our economy, our environment, um, and, and frankly, the quality of food we enjoy at home, that I think with education, this, this would become a bigger issue with consumers. Um, so something that stood out to me in our conversation is that um, basically there's no silver bullet solution. So while Zest Labs technology is helping reduce food waste, um, it takes education um, of consumers and other tactics to help with the problem. That's Deanna Anderson, the newly minted associate editor here at Green Biz Group. Thanks again. Thank you. Repurpose is a social venture that is helping consumers and businesses go, quote, plastic neutral, end quote, by helping them calculate their unique plastic footprint. The organization has created a platform that is part measurement system and part offsets mechanism. Founded in a tiny dorm room at the University of Pennsylvania, the startup has created what co-founder Svanika Balasubrayan describes as a plastic credit platform. Balasubrayan and her co-founders got the idea for Repurpose while researching a thesis on the informal economy of recycling that has sprouted up in places like Davnar on the outskirts of Mumbai in India. When I spoke with her, she told me that Repurpose hopes to address two big problems. Rather than me paraphrasing her answers and explaining exactly how the platform works, I'll let her tell you in her own words. Here's a portion of our interview. We really need, urgently need more investment in recycling infrastructure, more investment in innovations that are promoting circularity um, in our economy. And in dumping grounds, just like Dave Nar worldwide, there are millions of people um, being exploited and being engaged by the informal recycling sector and struggling to find a way out. Our solution deals with both of these problems, the environmental and the socioeconomic. So now at the heart of repurpose, at the heart of what we mean when we say plastic neutral is this idea that any of us, you know, individuals, businesses, organizations, whoever we are, need to take responsibility for our own unique plastic footprint. Um, and, and we need to have opportunities to do that in an easy and efficient way. So here we're really just, I think, building on the carbon credit model where we looked at what worked and what didn't and built on that to bring to you the world's first plastic credit platform. So you or your business can go plastic neutral in three simple steps. Step number one, measure. Step number two, offset and step number three reduce uh, so what does that really look like so the first step um, is measurement where we help you or your business uh, really quantify what your plastic footprint is in any given month or year kind of dependent on the scope of the project so let me give you an example um, Heather you can go on our on our website and in three engaging minutes we ask you a series of lifestyle questions and we're able to estimate what your plastic footprint could be and on 
on average, we see about 100 kilograms for, for the average user we get. And in much the same way, we have our own proprietary tools to help businesses estimate their plastic footprint. And, and this step is really important because how do we find solutions if we don't even know exactly where the problem is? Um, so that's measurement. Now, step number two is offset. We help you fund the recovery and ethical recycling of an equivalent volume of plastic somewhere in the world. Um, so keeping with the example um, of uh, kind of you, Heather, uh, so assuming your plastic footprint is 100 kilograms, at 50 cents a kilogram, you would pay about $50. Um, and what we would do is take this money and redirect it to one of our partner organizations on the ground. And these are all very vetted, um, experienced, formal waste management players who are able to have real impact but are just short of capital. So they would take this $50 um, and use it to go out into the environment, into our rivers or landfills and recover 100 kilograms of plastic waste on your behalf, bring it back to the facilities and get it ethically recycled and give you credit for that process to take place. Um, and so what this means is that Heather, you as a person have gone plastic neutral uh, because you had this debt to the environment of 100 kilograms and you've funded the recovery and recycling of 100 kilograms uh, of plastic waste. And in, in a very similar way, we're also able to offset the plastic footprints of businesses um, matched to their unique footprint and certify them as being plastic neutral. Uh, so that's the offset step. Now, finally, step number three, reduction. And this is also vitally important uh, to what we do because the way we see it, uh, all of us were at point A right now where we have plastic that we use in our everyday lives, businesses uh, that are required to have plastic packaging in their products or in their supply chains. And we want to get to point B. And point B is this ideal situation where we've redesigned away plastic that doesn't need to exist. Um, all of our single-use plastic has, has been replaced with alternatives and we have circular models and so on. But getting from point A to point B is a very time and resource intensive process and offsetting is really this bridge that can help you get there, that can help you get uh, from where we are today to where we would like to be tomorrow. And a repurpose, we really think about it as recycling as a solution for today and reduction and redesign as a solution for tomorrow. And, and so we have a suite of products to help businesses make that transition um, in, into the future. Now, we have several uh, verticals to help businesses customize this plastic neutral journey to their needs. But my quick favorite uh, is the everyday neutral option where we embed this concept into point of sale and allow businesses uh, to add a simple checkbox at, at kind of the checkout counter so that consumers can opt in to add 20 cents, 30 cents, um, maybe a dollar to offset the unique plastic footprint of their transaction that day. By the way, now that Svanika has put me on the spot, you can bet I'll be doing the research to figure out what my plastic footprint really is. She told me over the next year, Repurpose hopes to divert more than $2 million of investment into what it calls ethical recycling and 
closed loop models to address the plastic waste problem. You can learn more about its approach by visiting repurpose.global. On Tuesday this week, the heads of 11 major environmental groups signed a full-page ad in the New York Times calling for businesses to adopt a science-based climate policy. The groups included the leaders of BSR, CDP Series, Conservation International, EDF, the Union of Concerned Scientists, WRI, WWF, and some others. Specifically, the ad called for companies to advocate for policies consistent with achieving net zero emissions by 2050, align their trade association's climate policy advocacy with that same goal, and ensure that their lobbying activities advance climate policies, not obstruct them. What do these activists hope to achieve? Here to talk about that is Victoria Mills, who heads EDF's work with companies on climate policy. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Joel. So what was behind the ad? Give us a little bit of the backstory and what you were hoping to see happen. Yeah, and and you know, I was reflecting on this after reading your summary of Climate Week and um, the sense of urgency that I think we're all feeling to address climate change. And I think that urgency is changing the question that we ask ourselves from what can we do to fight climate change to what's the most powerful thing we can do. And that's also redefining what it means to be a corporate leader on climate change. So what we're hoping to accomplish with this letter from 11 NGOs is to be really clear on where corporate leadership is needed and what the most powerful things are that companies can do. And what a science-based climate policy agenda uh, means is supporting policies that will get us to that net zero emissions by 2050 goal, which is what the IPCC says is needed to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. So, what does success look like? Uh, what are you hoping uh, will result from this? Uh, 10 CEOs stepping up or 50 or 100? Or is the number not the point? Yeah, I think what we'd really like to see is a response from businesses that is equal to the challenge of climate change. And we'd like to see a lot more companies following in the footsteps of companies like those that are in CEO Climate Dialogue or Series Bicep or Climate Leadership Council or the Sustainable Food Policy Alliance that have been out front calling for policies that will achieve net zero emissions by 2050 and, and achieve the kind of emission reductions that we need. Um, and I think a greater intensity of activity at all levels, whether it's on the Hill, or in home districts, the lawmakers, or in state capitals, or in the public sphere. So what do you specifically want to see result from this? What does success look like that make, will make you say, this ad did exactly what we were hoping it would do? I think this, this letter is part of a larger story that's developing of increasing scrutiny of companies of their lobbying on climate change. And um, whether it's coming from us as NGOs or investors or consumers or employees, I think 
all of these stakeholders are increasingly focused on whether companies have a climate policy agenda that's aligned with their environmental goals. And so I don't think this change is going to happen overnight. Um, but I, I think what I would like to see is companies having this conversation internally. Let's say we've got a science-based greenhouse gas reduction target. Does our climate policy agenda match that? And what are we doing in each of these three areas on advocacy, on alignment with our trade associations, and on allocating our advocacy spending? And, and we'd like to see some changes in each of those areas. Your boss, Fred Krupp, wrote a piece that appeared in Forbes this week noting that, quote, CEOs who are serious about climate action must use the most powerful tool in the corporate arsenal, their political influence, unquote. Um, so much of the attention has been focused on companies that are either very proactive, you mentioned the you know, series bicep companies, for example, uh, or those that are working uh, against the interests, the fossil fuel industry, for example. But in that big fat middle of that uh, bell curve is everybody else. And, and getting them to speak out is, is usually requires some kinds of carrots and sticks, uh, incentives of some kind or activist pressures or threats of activist pressures. What do you see as the tools that will persuade companies or CEOs to get, out, uh, off, get off the sidelines and into the game? Well, I think it starts with some real honest reflection of what climate change will do to their business. Um, a lot of this is, is starting with the movement uh, for disclosure of climate risk, but I think it's that question of what are the business implications of climate change are, is much broader than just answering, do we have a requirement to disclose material risk? It is, how is this playing out for our business and where does our business want to be 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now. Um, I think the companies that are doing that will have a real leg up in terms of um, their, their, their financial sustainability, their license to operate, their ability to attract talent. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it, it beats me how a company can look at the IPCC report and, a, and the National Climate Assessment and the impacts that are already happening in the world. Um, in, in the past year, we've seen Hurricane Dorian with billions of dollars of damage and incalculable human costs. We're seeing, again, another cycle of wildfires in California, tornadoes across the Great Plains, catastrophic flooding in the Midwest, and, and that's just in the U.S. In, in the first half of 2019 alone, over... Seven million people were displaced by extreme weather. So if you're really understanding what, what that all means for your business, it's, it's hard for me to get why you wouldn't want to get behind policies that are going to solve the underlying problem. So is there a poster child for this? Is there a CEO that you point to who seems to be the one who gets it that you say, we want more CEOs to be like this person? I would, I would hesitate to point out specific CEOs. I can point out kind of leadership behaviors um, that 
I think are really important that are consistent with the the three actions in the letter that advocate, align, and allocate. I think you know some really exciting developments recently include the the lead on carbon pricing fly-in in um, in May of this year, where 75 companies participated in meetings on the Hill, calling for legislation that would put a price on carbon. Um, looking at um, the Sustainable Food Policy Alliance that put out its climate policy principles earlier in the spring, or the CEO Climate Dialogue um, that is actively meeting with members of Congress and has a set of guiding principles for climate policy, is responding publicly to developments on the Hill. Um, and, you know, in terms of trade associations, which are another really powerful force, can, can be a force for good or a force for ill, um, Unilever put out a letter to its trade associations asking them to ensure that their lobbying was consistent with the goals of the Paris Agreement. And now even the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has a member task force on climate change. I think all of those are really positive developments, and that's what we'd like to see a lot more of. So where does this go next? Well, I think that's, I'd like to turn that question back to the businesses. Um, and how are they going to respond? Um, I think, you know, we're certainly going to be talking to the companies that are in EDF's network. I know I've heard the other NGOs on the letter say the same is true for them. Um, I think, you know, in terms of your your question of how do you establish rewards for companies that step out on this issue, I think what I'd love to see is kind of more acknowledgement of climate policy leadership in a lot of the mechanisms that already exist to show showcase corporate leadership, whether it's awards that are given at conferences or, um, you know, rankings that come out. We put out a report called The Blind Spot in corporate sustainability rankings back in March that highlighted this gap. Um, and, I, you know, in talking to some of those entities that rank and rate companies on, on their environmental performance, there's, I think, a lot of receptivity to start including climate policy advocacy specifically. Um, there are groups that already do that, like Influence Map, that's focused on looking at climate policy leadership. So I think, um, you know, the, this wasn't hard, Joel. This, there was a lot of energy around this topic among the NGOs. It was not difficult to put together this letter. It was not difficult um, to get a positive response from some of the companies that are leading on this already. And you saw the ad in, in roll call from the Sustainable Food Policy Alliance companies. And I think in my conversations with companies, they know this is where they need to focus next. And so I think we're going to start to see more responses and more action. Um, and it's not going to happen in one fell swoop, and it's going to be messy, um, as politics are. Uh, but I, I don't see an alternative because there's if, if you look at where at the, the graph of where we need to go from business as usual to two degrees, let alone one and a half, there is a huge chasm. There's a huge amount of greenhouse gas reductions that we need to drive 
by mid-century. And it's not going to happen through voluntary actions alone, as important as those voluntary actions are. Well, messy and taking some time. That's called sustainability. Victoria Mills is Managing Director of EDF Plus Business, one of the signatories of this full-page ad this week in the New York Times calling for companies to adopt a science-based climate policy. Thanks so much, Victoria. Thank you, Joel. Happy to be here. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go, as always, to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization, the stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're on the site, check out our free e-newsletters. There is a different one Monday through Friday, five different newsletters in all. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll find out more about them. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week from the Verge 19 conference in Oakland with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>